0: Okay, tonight is Wednesday. It is February 23rd. Our message tonight comes from John 8, and it is Jesus, light of the world. But while you're turning to John 8, I want to share something with you that I got during worship. And you will find that in John 13. In John 13, and again, this is off-subject, but it's a note for the church, and it's noteworthy enough that I want to go ahead and get it onto a CD to be preserved, to be reminded of sometime when we forget about it. In John 13, before we get into our topic, Jesus' light of the world, we see Jesus do something that is peculiar. The God of the universe, and that's how the Jews prayed to Him. O Lord, uh, Lord of the universe, maker of the heavens and the earth. That's how they address God. as the God that created everything, the awesome God. The God of the universe is sitting at a table with people in human form. He's about to face the most excruciating ordeal that could possibly be imagined at the cross. And before he does, he decides that he wants to set a final example before he even goes to the cross. So he begins to disrobe himself. Jesus had a a woven garment uh, that went from his shoulders down to the floor that was something that was of worth. And he set aside everything that was of worth that was on his body, stripped down to his undergarments, dressed just like a servant, and walked over to His disciples and began to wash their feet. What I want to share with you before we get into the message that I want this church to understand and more than understand, excel in, is this principle. It's found in John 13, verse 12. When He had finished washing their feet, He put on His clothes and returned to His place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call Me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. You know, not very many times does Jesus come right out and say who He is in the Word. I mean, He says it, and then He expects other people to get it. And He doesn't repeat Himself about it over and over. Here He tells them, you call Me teacher and Lord? Rightly so. That's exactly what I am. Now that I, your Lord, that means your owner and controller, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I don't want this church to ever lose the foot-washing spirit. You know, this is not about the disciples having dirty feet. It's not about that at all. It's about an act of somebody who is in great authority, who set aside all of the esteem of his great authority, and served somebody like a humble servant, like somebody of no account. Jesus set his reputation, his authority, all of those things aside as he became incarnate, and we know that. Here's an example right before he died. They recognize He is their Lord. This was hard for them to allow Him to do. It would be like allowing President Bush to come in here and wash your feet or somebody greater than President Bush for sure. It would be awkward. This is a man of dignity, a man of esteem, a man of stature, and here he is washing my feet. He did that to set an example. That has to be our attitude towards one another. It has to be. You should, no matter how highly you esteem yourself, no matter what your reputation is, no matter what you've achieved, what authority you've obtained, you have to have the attitude of Jesus, which is find the lowest person around you and be willing to wipe the very scum off of their feet for their benefit. I want us to dwell on that for a while. I really do. Think about that. I'm going to teach on Jesus the light of the world tonight, and I hope it's something that changes your life and that you understand and that enriches your knowledge. But if this church is not known for its servanthood, we really are failures. I don't want to be a group of people that can go out and impress everybody with your theological knowledge of John. I think I can equip you to do that. If that's what you're after, I think I could equip you to do that. But it's not my desire, and I don't believe it's God's desire for you. What I am hoping happens from your great learning, if you will, is that you will become more like Jesus, more willing to look at somebody who's of no account and lower yourself not just to their level, Beneath them, willing to wash their feet. You know how you start to do that? You start with each other. If you can't do it with each other, you will never do it for the people in the world. Start with each other. In this little church, there have been people that did beautiful things for me, and I love that. I want you to do beautiful things for each other. You know, people have left me nice little gifts and all kinds of things. And I'm excited about it. It has nothing to do with the monetary value. It had to do that somebody was thinking about my needs before their very own. And I appreciate that. I want that Spirit to be on each of you for one another. I want you to excel in that. Everybody got that? Think about that during the week. Okay, flip back to John 8. We're going to get into our Word here. In John 8, starting in verse 1... We pick up our message. I know you already whine and you say, oh my God, we already covered the first 12 verses of John. Why are we, John 8, 1, why are we going back there? When I taught on this, you remember I told you there was a specific setting that this woman in adultery was brought in at. The Feast of Tabernacles has just concluded. John 7, the teaching on the Tabernacles, was all about that. Then John 8, I told you that this is the day after the Feast of Tabernacles and that it's an important day. And we have this interruption. I want to start with the first verse and we will move into the text that we're supposed to cover tonight. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around Him and He sat down to teach them. So we have an early in the morning setting. Jesus is in the temple courts. Okay? Then we have the whole story of the woman caught in adultery. And you all know, I've told about that. The message was called Dismissing the Accuser. And hopefully you understand what that was about and why it's a beautiful shadow and type. We're going to move past that and pick up in John 12. I'm sorry, John 8:13. But I wanted you to get the setting because the setting doesn't change. We have still just finished tabernacles. It is early in the morning, it's dawn, and Jesus is standing there in the court of the temple. In fact, I just tell you, the 20th verse later here says that he is uh, in the court of the temple. Let's see, what's verse 20 say? Uh, He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. He's by the treasury in the temple. Anybody have any idea where that's located? I hinted at this before I may even have said it. If you look at this picture over here, and I should have got a slide for you. When you step inside this wall, you're in the city of Jerusalem. When you step inside this wall, you're in the courts of the temple. When you step inside this wall, the next one, You're in the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. Step inside that, you're in a more holy place. Inside that, a more holy place. Well, this temple area was in the court of the women that he's standing in. And what is neat about that is in his backdrop, immediately behind him, as if you were standing in front of the Empire State Building or something y'all are probably more familiar with, the Louisiana State Capitol. If you were standing in that garden in front of the Louisiana State Capitol, immediately behind you, you would see this towering structure, right? That's where Jesus is. Immediately behind Him is a towering structure. And on this towering structure are candelabras, these enormous lanterns with lanterns all over them. And this is important because at the feast, on the last and the greatest day, at the time of the evening sacrifice, they lit these and they burned all through the night. And they extinguished them in the morning. At this extinguishing that occurred, it occurred at dawn. So Jesus is standing in an area with this as the backdrop. Does anybody have any idea what those candelabras were supposed to represent to the Jews? The Jews had done something very special. They had followed a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of fire in a cloud by day. They had done that for more than 40 years in a desert teaching them things. We're going to study tonight what that taught them. But they basically learned to follow that light. Now, how did John introduce Jesus in the very beginning of this book? I mean, how does the Word say it? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light... Of men, Consistently throughout John, Jesus is referred to as light and life, and the two are synonymous terms. Now we're standing in a place where there are lights that symbolize the very presence of God that you were supposed to follow in any and every situation. And Jesus stands up in verse 13 and says, I'm sorry, the Pharisees challenged Him. Now, verse 12, starting in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, we want to take this and make it a just nice poetic saying out of its context. Put it in its context, and what you have is 1,600 years of Judaic worship centered around a temple. Uh, the temple's been rebuilt. The temple's, this is Zerubbabel's temple rebuilt by Herod but still always centered around a specific place. God said, don't go sacrifice out in the fields. Don't go sacrifice on the high places. You are to bring your sacrifice here. Jewish life centered around this building. And now Jesus is standing in front of the building. Right behind Him, they're extinguishing lights. The lights that were there to guide them through the darkness in the wilderness. The lights that would symbolize God's presence in the desert and they knew they were supposed to follow them. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you'll never walk in darkness. There could be no question in any Jews' mind at this point he was claiming to be the very presence of God. Zero question. And they don't like it. They don't like it at all. Now we know that there's a great lesson in this. What I want you to pick up on on, and we're going to go to Deuteronomy and some other places here in a minute, is This whole chapter is about following the presence of God. Jesus is going to teach on it. He's going to examine it. In fact, the whole key to the Christian life is to follow the presence of God. Christianity is not summed up in what you know. Christianity is not even summed up in what you believe. Christianity is summed up by being led of God's Spirit. Galatians tells you if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That's something people don't understand. Romans tells you in Romans 8 that if you're led by the Spirit, you're a son of God. Now, you ought to be intimately familiar with this. How many times in this church do I begin a sermon in Genesis 3? (laughs) I mean, what do we do that? Nine out of ten every sermon? Eight out of ten? Something like that? What was life like before somebody ate of the knowledge of good and evil? They They depended on God For everything. They followed His every desire. Christians return to that state. That's what we do. We lay aside our carnal nature. We are now empowered to leave our life of sin and we follow the leading of the Spirit. That is Christianity. It's not in the letter of this book. It's not in anything else. It is in the leading of God's Spirit. The rest are tools and aids to get you to do that. Uh, Throw me that backpack, would you? Thank you, brother. You can go ahead and turn to uh, Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus 13. Let's read a little bit about what these lights were, what they did, okay? Then you'll understand Jesus' statement and context and this whole discourse that He has with the Pharisees ought to be a lot clearer to you than it was before. Start in Exodus 13, verse... 17. Now, your little title here says Crossing the Red Sea. Okay, so that tells you where we are. We've just left Egypt. We've just had the uh, Passover, and uh, now we're crossing the Red Sea. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. I can't help but mention while we're here, they left Egypt armed for battle. And yet God led them on a road that took them out of battle. Why would that be? Why did He say it was? He didn't want them to face battle too soon and turn back. If you ever think God's put you in over your head, If you ever think the struggles are too much, you remember that we serve the kind of God that arms you to the hilt for battle, but will not let you into battle before you're ready. That's how His nation began. They were armed to the T for battle, but He took them the long way around so that they didn't face battle because He didn't want them to get discouraged. So quit whining about being overwhelmed. He will not let you be overwhelmed. We serve the kind of God that won't allow it. If you're overwhelmed, it's because you're not following His light. Okay? That's hard, isn't it? I hope I can live it. It's easy, easy to stand up here and say it. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. What a strange thing to include in the Word, huh? They're carrying some dead guy's bones. Guys, they're armed for battle and they're carrying the promises of God. Why would they carry somebody's bones with them? Why would Joseph care that they promised that? Their hope, was firmly set in what our hope is. There's a resurrection. And when the resurrection occurred, the resurrection of the righteous, Joseph did not want to resurrect in Egypt. He wanted to resurrect with his brothers. Why? Y'all think that's funny? So they carried his bones. He made them promise. They've left Egypt armed for battle and with the promises of God in their heart. And they're showing it by their action. Now watch what else they did. After leaving Succoth, <laughs> well, we'll move right on from there. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. God went where? Ahead of them. If you're a Christian, you cannot find yourself in a place in life where God was not before you got there. He's never surprised at the mess you're in. He's never shocked at the route that you've taken. If you are following Him, He was there preparing the way ahead of you. And the sooner that we learn to view life like that, the better. Wow, there's some bumps in the road. God must have intended that my shocks would get a workout here today. There's a reason for it. When you embrace that, all of a sudden trials become useful instead of destroying. It says they could travel day or night. Christians gravitate towards other Christians. You want to hang around people that are easy, people that love you, that say good things to you. Christians were meant to travel in the daytime or the nighttime. You're meant to be with the raven or the dove. It's great to get encouraged and walk in the light of the sun, but you are called to shine in the darkness, day or night. So if you look around you and it's dark everywhere, you realize it's your opportunity to shine. We need to lay aside our whining spirit about our circumstances. We really do. We're following God's spirit and He leads you in the day and in the night. By the way, when you think of this cloud... When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, I was discussing with that with somebody the other night, what enveloped Him? It said a bright cloud. Indeed, you see it all over. You see a bright cloud fill the temple. A bright cloud do all kinds of, The Shekinah glory of God manifest as a cloud. So when you're seeing them follow a cloud by day, don't think of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man in the sky. Think of something that looked like a nuclear mushroom cloud something that was glowing by fire in a cloud, because we're going to see that the other nations stood and they watched in awe of this. They didn't look up and say, wow, the Israelites are chasing a cumulus or stratus or cirrus cloud around. There was something very peculiar about this cloud. Neither the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. It never left its place in front of the people. It didn't leave its place, but I wonder how often the people took their eyes off of it. God's role in your life will never change. What Jesus announced 2,000 years ago standing in the portico of this temple, I am the light of the world, has not changed. You can choose to enjoy that light or you can dwell in darkness. And the Bible speaks about people that do both. But He will never leave His place. That is His role. That is who He is. What you think about Him, how you relate to Him, how you act, does not change who He is, but it will change who you are. See, when you embrace that light, it will renovate your whole life. He never left His place. So from Numbers, you find out that they left armed with the promises in their heart and they were led by God Himself, daytime and nighttime. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. This would be easy. From the left, y'all can just hang a right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In the first chapter of Deuteronomy, starting in the 26th verse, this is the first time the Israelites come to the Promised Land. They look out, they find out that they're grasshoppers in their own eyes. Christians are never supposed to look through their own eyes. You're supposed to get God's perspective in a situation. So, since they're grasshoppers in their own eyes, a bad report spreads throughout the land and they decide to be disobedient. Starting in verse 26, But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us up out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart, they say. The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God Who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son (laughs) all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. This light of God went before them not just to lead them, to show them the very places they should go and to literally be searching the land for the place for them to camp. God's spiritual leading is not just about maintaining your obedience. He's not leading for the sake of just seeing if you will follow. He has in mind the best places for you to camp because He wants to prosper you. You can look back in your life and see moves just like this. He is looking for the best place for you to camp. Look what else He wants from you. When the Lord heard what you said, He was angry and solemnly swore, Not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, He will see it and I will give him and his descendants the land he sets his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The Lord is leading. He is a great light. Jesus is that light. He is always in his place. Your thoughts about him will not change that. He is the leader you are supposed to follow. He has in mind to go ahead of you and search and see what would be best for you. And what he's looking for from you is a wholehearted commitment to follow Now, this was a situation where an entire nation turned and three men wanted to do God's will. Just three. You know what's really interesting about that? God waited for every human being in Israel to die besides those three men. Not one of them went into the promised land, other than two of those three men. Isn't that interesting? If you don't follow God wholeheartedly, you can never see the blessings of God. The blessings are for the obedient. Now, He's got your best interest in mind. He's looking for the places for you to camp. He has examined the area. If there's too much battle for you there, He'll take you a different route. You saw that in Exodus 13? He's got your best interest in heart, but He is the light of the world and you have to follow Him. There are no choices. That is what Christianity is. We have to decide whether we want to participate in that or go be a Hindu, you know? Choose from 12 national gods. Worship a rat, you know? Follow a cow around and do filthy things. The God we serve leaves no room for anything except wholehearted commitment. That's what we pledge to Him when we call Him our Lord. The reason the Bible can make the statement that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved it's assuming that it's a true statement. When you call Him Lord, you are calling Him your owner and your controller. That's what it means. He is your sovereign. He has divine dominion over you. For you to be saved, that's got to be true. Moving on from Deuteronomy, turn to Nehemiah. Probably hadn't been to Nehemiah in a while. To get to Nehemiah, I always go to Psalms or Job and then hang a left. In the Thompson chain, this will be on page 546. In Nehemiah 9, verse 19, we find these words. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them, "...on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way you were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen." Never at any time did God's leading leave the Israelites' life. How many times did they rebel against him? How many times did they want to throw away Moses? How many times did they grumble against their leader and whine to go back to Egypt? But he never left his position of leadership in their life. This is why Jesus can stand up and say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The example had already been set. The forerunner of Jesus was the presence of God visibly there. You might even say that the pillar of fire by day uh, in the cloud or by night was a sort of Jesus in that it was an visible image of God. Now, I don't mean that it was Jesus and I'm not saying that. But I'm telling you, it taught the people to follow something visually that represented God. Now, turn back to John. In John 8, standing in this area of the temple where they are used to seeing these lights extinguished at this time, Jesus introduces a new light, the light of God, the one that is going before them to look for the best places, the one that has their interest in mind, the one that they must follow, the one that will never leave them nor forsake them regardless of their lack of faithfulness. And He stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Many of the people understood this. Jesus is going to go on and explain it and you're going to see many people put their faith in Him because of this. They understood what He meant. The Pharisees challenged Him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Where did they get that idea? The same law that talked to them about all the things that we read, the same books that we just read spoke of a situation where there was litigation and said somebody can't appear just as their own witness. You need two or more to establish a matter. This is why the Bible teaches us that in matters of church discipline, if two or more are there, He's there in our midst. Oh, I know you've heard that quoted for years and years and years. Oh, well, there's two of us here, so Jesus is here. Jesus is with you all of the time. The Bible teaches you, and it goes over this many times, but Matthew 18 is one of them, that if there's a disputable matter get two people there, and when they agree on it, it's as if Jesus was there. This was a principle in the Judaic way of life. So the Pharisees are saying, hey, buddy, you're here saying these things, but it's just you. Listen to how Jesus answers this. This is powerful. Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. (laughs) In other words, even if I didn't meet the standards of your law, and I'm not saying I don't, but even if I didn't, It would still be valid because I'm telling the truth. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. Let me stop there for a minute. This whole topic is about being led of the Spirit. Have you ever wondered as a Christian, man, I'm in a dilemma. I'm talking to this guy and he looked at me and said, uh, uh, ah. Matthew 7 says, Judge not lest you be judged. Well, which is it? How do I know whether or not I can have judgment about this or not? Look at Jesus' answer very carefully and remember that the whole topic is about being led by the Spirit. He condemns their judgment for one reason. Anybody have a guess as to what it is? It's written right there. It's based on human standards. When we look at one another and we size one another up, when you look at a situation with your eyes and you use reason and logic and you decide something, you are not fit to judge. Mankind has proved that for thousands of years. We are not just judges. In fact, Proverbs says, whoever presents their argument first seems right. And isn't that true? Anybody that's ever had kids has had one run in and say, Daddy, he did this and he did that. And boy, you're mad. You're ready to wallop him until you get to the other kid. And he says, yeah, but he did the" Then all of a sudden it's looking more like an equitable sin here, like they both participated in it, didn't it? Human standards are never qualified for judgment. But the Bible tells us the spiritual man makes judgments about all things. So how is it that you decide? How do I know whether or not Eric is telling the truth here? How do I know whether or not I can trust Steve? How do I know whether I should go into business with so and so? Oh, I can't judge them. You are commanded by the Spirit of God to follow the leading of the Spirit and make spiritual judgments about things. This means it's not just your mind at work. You have to tap into the mind of Christ. Well, how do I know if I've done that? If you know Him, you know. If you don't, this seems like foolishness to you, and I know that. The Bible says that it does. I know when I've heard from God. I don't have to guess at it. I know when I've heard from God. A lot of times I don't know that I've heard. I mean, I'm not sure yet, still waiting. But when you've heard from God on a matter, then you are fit to make a judgment. I want you to remember that. Say, well, I can't say anything about that because we're not supposed to judge. If God Himself is yelling inside of your spirit telling you it's wrong, it's okay to say it's wrong because God's saying it's wrong. But other matters that are disputable that God's not made clear to you, you leave alone. So Jesus is condemning their judgment because they judge based on human standards. But He says, if He does judge, His judgment's right. Why? Because He is not alone. I stand with the Father who sent Me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for Myself, and My other witness is the Father who sent Me. Now, why should they be able to receive that? I mean, can you see the Father? No. Could they touch the Father? No. So why on earth should they believe Him when He says, My Father's right here testifying with Me? Because of the things that He did. Who could do the things that Jesus did if God were not with Him? How many other religions do you know are founded based on somebody who not only raises other people from the dead, but Himself? Somebody who not only opens blind eyes, but creates new eyeballs? Somebody who takes a stroll out on the Sea of Galilee on the top... Is is there another religion in the world that even makes these claims? How about in front of witnesses? This didn't happen on a faraway planet. This happened in front of witnesses. And their towns are recorded. And their names are recorded. And they're on maps in this church. You can still go there today. They exist today. They should have believed Him because the very work He was doing showed that God was with Him. Friends, I ask you when you're dealing with one another not to pass human judgment on each other. God is not the kind of God that gives somebody what they deserve. If He did, none of you would be here. You would all be condemned. I would be condemned. He gives people what they need. And your flesh may scream out, crush Him, He needs it. Crush Him, it's what He deserves. Crush Him, it's what He should get. It's coming to Him. And yet the Spirit of God speak in you and say, oh, I say give Him Mercy. My judgment is mercy. They may deserve the other, but God says, My judgment is mercy. And you might find the opposite. You might, Oh, he's sweet. He didn't mean anything by it. It's all better. And God inside you is saying, No, 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 no. Slap him right between the eyes with my word. I like those, but those are rarer and few far in between. Don't expect that very often. He's much more patient than you are. Then they asked him, Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. There are two reasons John includes that. What are the two reasons you could think of? Use use just... Go ahead and use your human judgment here. I'll allow it for a little while. What are the two reasons? One, I've already told you. The candelabras are behind him. It's the right place to make the statement... I am the light of the world. What, just by human standards, would be the reason that John points out that he's by the treasury? There are guards there. There are temple guards there with great big old spears. And they did not attack him. They've been planning to kill him. They've tried to seize him several times. They want him dead. But while he's right there at this time speaking, and it's within their seemingly power to do it, it doesn't happen. Why? Yet no one seized Him because His time had not yet come. You remember we started this by reading in Exodus that that light at night and at day went before them and it didn't anywhere that it had gone or anywhere they had gone, it had been first. Everything Jesus did was a perfect leading of the Spirit. Everything that He did. So He could walk into a situation that was seemingly a death threat and not have to be concerned because his father had led him into that position. He didn't have to be concerned that he was going to die. Why? Because his father had been there first. The Spirit of God had drawn him into that place. We walk around so much time with trepidation in our lives, acting as if the situation that we're in now has caught God by surprise. And... You kind of dismiss things. Oh, Eric, I know that's not true. I know nothing surprises God. The other way you back yourself into this situation is, well, I got off of the leading of God and now I'm over here and because of my own sin and disobedience, now I've made it so bad that God's not with me or not aware. Friends, look at the nation of Israel. The earth opened up and swallowed some of them. Anybody in here had that happen to you yet? And God never left His position right in front of them Leading them every day. That ought to be encouraging, shouldn't it? Come on, guys. Don't get beat down with this. I'm telling you that if the earth opened up and swallowed your left foot, you were such a loser that God did not leave His place of leading you in front. Whatever position you are in, He has not left you As an orphan, Nehemiah looked back on the history of his people, decided they needed to repent. He was at a time after the northern kingdom went into captivity, after the southern kingdom went into captivity, and the rebuilding had begun, and he could look back and say, I see nothing but idolatry. I see nothing but disobedience. And you never left your place of leading before us. God is a good God. When He stood up and said, I am the light of the world, if you walk in Me, you will never walk in darkness, He meant it. When He said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, He meant it. His leading is there in your life. His position never changes. It's our position that changes. He stays the same. It's us who's supposed to change. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away. And you will look for Me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. My God, the first time I ever read this, you know, it sent chills right up my spine. Can you imagine that the King of glory, who's announced Himself in so many ways as the living water, as the very light of God, as the house of God, Bethel, as the Lamb of God, all of these things, look you right in the eye and say, you will die in your sin? Can you imagine what that must have felt like? Now, I thought we weren't supposed to judge. I thought, is that just because He's God He's doing this? What about Philippians? He laid aside His authority, His reputation. He humbled Himself and became a servant. What about the Scripture I read you before where the God of the universe washed people's feet? Is He only doing this because He's God? He's doing this as an anointed man Led by the Spirit of God. And he's looking right at them and the Spirit of God is showing him they're going to die in their sins. So he proclaimed judgment. Now, I don't expect you to be able to do this with confidence tomorrow. I hope you never have to do it. But when you know that you're walking with God, you can have the mind of the Lord in matters. And it ought to give you great confidence. Why do you think Jesus tells His disciples, don't worry about what you'll say in that day? you remember Matthew 24? For I will be with you. I will give you the words to say. Why do we spend so much time worrying about everything that is going to happen in the future? Lord, this is not that hard. Put one foot in front of the other towards God. Whatever direction He's in, refuse to put square wheels on your church, your car, your life. Follow God in whatever direction and know that wherever you are, He's been there first. You know, it's a funny thing. You can put Judah and Gabriel in the other room or Natalie and Sydney, maybe even little Chloe one day. You can put them in a room and it's dark and they're scared immediately. Almost all children are scared of the dark. Why? I don't know. But if you give them a flashlight, everything's better, isn't it? A little bit of light all of a sudden dispels all fear. Friends, you're no different. You can be in the darkest place in your life and if you let a little bit of God's light shine on you, if you'll receive it, if you'll look towards it, if you'll rise your face off of your problems towards Him, everything feels better immediately. And we almost know that that's true and so we refuse to look up. No, I want to be pitied. I want to be sad. Darn it, I want everybody to know just how bad this is. And man, if you could just get your chin to tilt backwards a little bit. When God's light enters the room, everything's okay again. Whatever the problem is, is not so bad anymore. Just like a little kid with a flashlight. Now, here's the funny thing God never leaves his place, he's always there. It's your face that needs to turn towards him. God is always with you. That is always a... the whole story of the transfiguration. Jesus was Jesus before the transfiguration. He was Jesus after the transfiguration. And He was Jesus during the transfiguration. Do you know what was different? They could see Him for what He was during the transfiguration. He wasn't any different the day before. He wasn't any different the day after. The only thing that changed was their perspective. And saints, sometimes we just need a change of perspective. He is the light Of the world. Get that down in your soul. Mix it with the fact that you're supposed to be a servant. And you know what you'll find yourself doing? Being led into all kind of loving works of service. And you know what? People will like to be around you. You will like to be around them. And this thing will work like it should. But if we sit back and we want to be served, and we whine and we complain about our lives, and we refuse to tilt our head back to have the light of God shine on us, the opposite is true. People will run from you like you are a cockroach. Nobody will want to be around you and you will be unhappy. Why? Because of your perspective. God's not any different. It's us. We can choose to walk in His light. Some in Israel are going to choose to walk in His light, even in this very chapter. At the very same time in the crowd, others are not going to walk in His light. Now, there are times I stand up here and I preach and I say things like I've said and honest to God, I've got one or two of you in mind. It's a bully pulpit sometimes. I want you to know tonight, I'm not beating on anybody. I'm preaching from my heart. Not prepared. There's no slides up there. I'm telling you when I get out of the Word as it comes to me. So don't sit there and say, Pastor, call me a cockroach. If I want to call you a cockroach, I'll do it with Matt standing right beside me so that you can't hurt me. Bodyguards. You know pastors in Bogota, Colombia actually have to have bodyguards? The drug dealers get so mad when you get all their crew converted that they want to kill you. It's hard to sell drugs to Christians. Okay, uh, this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go you cannot come? It's amazing. They're catching on, huh? Except he's not going to kill himself. He's going to allow them to kill him. But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. Oh, that's pretty point blank. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you... This is so funny. There was a time when we were in a church and somebody hit on a, one of the women in the church. Pretty single woman. Uh, definitely old enough to be married. And somebody was hitting on her. And uh, she stood up to give the testimony in church. You know, I was at the car wash and somebody was hitting on me. And the pastor, who was very zealous, loved the woman. he said, Did you tell them... I'm light, you're dark, and uh, the two can't mix. And right at that moment, the gentleman who happened to be black that was hitting on her stood up and said, actually, I'm here this morning. She was white, he was black. The pastor had no idea. And the testimony was going to be, he hit on me and no, I wouldn't go out with him, but I told him to come to church and he did. And he was there. Wow. Yeah, we, we sometimes put our feet in their mouth, but it's a funny story to tell, isn't it? Okay, but he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Do you know why the one I claim to be is in parentheses? It's inferred. It's not there. you know what Jesus really says? If you don't believe I'm the one, you'll die. That's really what he said. He didn't even have to, have to clarify it with the one that I claimed to be. If you don't believe I'm it, I'm the guy, then you're going to die in your sin. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. <laughs> now, this is funny because he didn't come to judge the world, remember? He said, I did not come to judge the world. I mean, he said that. It was in John 3. We read it. This world stands condemned already. We know that. But He has much to say in judgment of them. Well, why did not He say it? Come on, Jesus, speak your mind. Three snaps in a Z formation. Get it out there. Why not tell them? Because Jesus only said what He heard His Father say. You know how much better Christianity would be if we only said what our Father told us to say? How many times have you come in loaded for bear, ready? I'm just going to tell Steve this week, you know, blah, 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 blah. And God didn't much tell me to say any of that. I one time was in a restaurant in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And friends, I'm one of those guys that never complains about food in a restaurant because I've worked in food service. And I don't want anybody doctoring my meal for me. Okay? You remember that shake you drank, Matthew? (laughs) Matthew got to the bottom of a shake and there was a a toenail in it. So he didn't do anything wrong. That was... uh, I sh- Lord, I probably shouldn't even share that. I'm sorry. What I'm trying to say is I was in this restaurant, right? I never complain about service. Never. Not at any... I also never don't tip. Never. Okay? I don't want to be the recipient of a bad deal because I was cruel in any way. And this one day, the service was so bad that I began to think, if I don't tell the manager... I'm doing them a disservice. I'm talking about we waited an hour in between things. And then when it came out, it was thrown at us on the table. It was horrible service. Okay, I'm I'm talking about as bad as you could possibly imagine. So I called the manager over, right? This thing that I never do. Sir, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but that waitress has got a real problem. I mean, we've been here two hours. We still haven't eaten our food. What has been brought to us has been thrown at us. It's cold. She's been mean. I've tried to talk to her. He looked me right in the eye and said, I'm so sorry. She lost her baby the other day and she's come back to work too soon. See, when you pass judgments in human standards, you cannot possibly know. The only saving grace in all that is I didn't say it to her. (laughs) You know, that's the only saving grace. But God can know. If Jennifer and I had taken some time and prayed about that, I guarantee you that pillar of fire, that cloud during the day would not have led me in that direction. We get into trouble when we dethrone God as the judge. We become the judge and we make judgment. You can't do it. Can't. Not at any time. Now the reality is every one of you will. I do it. You do it. We all do it. You have to work not to. Jesus does not tell them all the things that He has to say to them even though He probably wants to. Because God has not told him to. What a testimony. You know, we say oh, Jesus never sinned. He never committed adultery. He never did any of these things. You think, wow, that's awesome. You know what is awesome to me? He never spoke a single word that God didn't tell him to speak. Yeah. He, only, he spoke every time God told him to speak. How many times have you been in a situation and your heart was burning within you, you knew you needed to speak up and instead you shut up? How many times? Usually around other church people too. They won't understand. What do you mean prophesy in tongues, Lord? You know? They'll throw me out of here. <laughs> then there are people like me that speak up when they should shut up. I mean, it does go both ways. Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you, but He who sent Me is reliable. And what I have heard from Him, I will tell the world. I When we don't follow God's leading, when you don't wait for His mind in a matter, when you just tell somebody just what's on your mind, you're showing that you really don't think God is reliable. He's reliable. Spend some time. Get with Him. Let it build your... If you're going into a situation where you need to say the right words, God is reliable. Spend some time with Him. He'll show you. If He wants you to have the promotion, He'll give you the words to get the promotion. If He wants you to get that house, He will give you the right words on the purchase agreement. He will work to your benefit and He is reliable. There is no place you can get that He hasn't gone ahead of you. That's His position. We just need to get the right perspective on it. You're with me? Okay, well, we're going to close here in just a minute. Or a few minutes or maybe multiple minutes, one stacked on each other. Who knows? They did not understand that He was telling them about His Father. You remember that this whole thing started because they wanted to know who His witness was? Now He's telling them, everything I say to you is my Father speaking, <laughs> but they don't get it. <laughs> when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing out on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who is with me He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. I always do what pleases Him. Even as He spoke, many of them put their faith in Him. In servanthood, in leading of the Spirit, in every situation, you need to judge that God is reliable and always do what pleases Him. It's not a bad idea when you're trying to make a decision. Say, Could this be pleasing to the Lord? You know what? If you surround yourself with people that do that, even if you screw up and wrong somebody really bad, if they can look and see that your motive was to do what was pleasing to the Lord, it's a non-issue. When everybody's trying to do what is pleasing to the Lord, offenses fall off. Love covers a multitude of sins. But when we're self-centered, when we're interested in doing what is pleasing to us, You stand out in the body of Christ like a wart on a hawk. I mean, it just doesn't work because the body of Christ is beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. He's the light of the world. We need to take up His attitude. I want to tell you two more things and we're closing. John 14 teaches us about the leading of the Spirit. teaches us about not being left as orphans, that God is right there by way of His Spirit. You will not wake up tomorrow morning Look out of your window and see an atomic cloud that is God. If you see an atomic cloud, it's not God. We're in trouble, okay? (laughs) You will not walk out tonight, get in your cars, look up and see a pillar of fire in the sky unless somebody's lobbing nukes at us, okay? That is not the way that God has chosen to manifest Himself in this age. But He has manifested Himself by way of His Spirit. His Spirit should be evident in all of our lives. He should be the very deposit guaranteeing that we are His. More than just Him being in your life and it being evident that He's in your life, you have to be obedient to His leading. That's the only way out from under the law of sin and death is to be in the Spirit's leading because He will lead you into life. In fact, He is life. He's the light of men and He is life. Then the second thing is Romans 8 teaches us, teaches us very clearly that the qualification for being a son of God is that you're led by the Spirit. Take some time this week. Think about the fact that the Lord is reliable. Think about the fact that we're supposed to do only what pleases the Lord and then as an umbrella over all of that, remember Jesus' attitude in serving and that we should do likewise and see if you pass that test. Would people look at my life and say, wow, he's led by the Lord? Or would they just say, wow, he's really wise? Or what would they say? What you want to be your legacy, your testimony is, man, that guy may not have got everything right, but he sure followed the leading of the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Jesus presents as his testimony. They say, hey, who's here with you testifying on your behalf? He said, my father is because I only do what he says to do. I please Him at every turn. I've judged Him reliable and I'll only say what He wants me to say. When you look at me, you're looking at Him. That's what He said. And you know what? That should be our testimony. Do you know why John says that the Spirit was given to you? That the world would learn that Jesus was one with the Father. The Father was one with Jesus and we are one with them. That's why the Spirit was given. puts us all in the same grouping because we're all working according to the... We're all on the same page, if you will. That's the role of the leading of the Spirit in your life. Stand up, let's pray.